Hello and welcome to International Disability Day, 3rd of December 2022. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And I'm Marissa and I will be presenting a show on First Nations people and the criminal justice system. I will be with you for the next hour. Thanks for joining me. First up on the show, we will be speaking with June Rima, First Nations woman and Deputy CEO of First People with Disability Network, and also with Kelly Cox, who will be joining June. And Kelly is a descendant of Woomerai people living in the Bundjalung Nation, and she is an ambassador for First People's Network and is a disability wheelchair user involved in systemic advocacy and human rights of people with disability. And June, when she joins us, will speak about what land she's from. And then we will be joined by Peter McGillaray, who is a South Sea Islander lawyer and First Nations woman and researcher about First Nations people and the criminal justice system. So today we will bring you lived experience of disability and First Nations-led programs. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. if we don't talk about us, everybody else is going to, and they're going to get it wrong. 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. Our next interview is going to be with June Rima, who is the Deputy CEO of First People Disability Net- with Disability Network, and she's a Gumbangia Dungeti woman from the north coast of New South Wales and June has worked in community care for 40 years and has a passion for the rights of First Nations people living with a disability and she is represented nationally and internationally at the United Nations in New York and then with her we're going to be speaking also with Kelly Cox who is a descendant of the Woomerai people living in the Bundjalun nation and she's an ambassador for First Peoples Network and is a disability wheelchair user involved in systemic advocacy and human rights for people with disability. Hello both of you, Kelly and June, welcome to the program. 
Good morning. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having us. Oh, it's so great to have you. And we're actually going to be speaking presently um, with both of you in regards to First Nations and the criminal justice system, but also talking about it in the context of, um, of disability as well. And that's really important, isn't it? So, June, can you just start off, um, I've already introduced you, but could you just start off just saying specifically what land you're from? Because it's really important for listeners to know exactly what land and how it's pronounced. So, could you just tell them again what land you're from? Yeah, so it's actually up um, north coast New South Wales. So, it's, uh, I'm a, um, I live on the lands of the Gumbangia people, which is my descendants, but I'm actually... Um, also Dungari descendants, which is from the Kempsey region of the north coast up to the Coffs Harbour area. And then Kelly, who's joining me on this, is the next area, which is Bundjalung. Wonderful. And that's music to my ears, hearing hearing those, that, those words. Um, now, Kelly, what, what land are you from? Um, so I'm a descendant of the Warramai people, so further south than where June is, around in the, the kind of Pari to Newcastle, Karua area. Um, I, I grew up on, on Biripai country in Tari, and I'm currently living um, on Bundjalung land up in northern New South Wales. Wonderful. So this show really looks at... Um you know, it's celebrating and honouring um, International Disability Day, which is happening on the on the third of December. And a lot of people, you know, like to celebrate the day, and some people don't. Some people think there's been no change at all. So, just to start off the interview, June, I'm just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the People's Network. Yes, yeah, so thank you. The very first much. People's Network, I should say. Yeah, go on. Correct. Yeah. So we're um, First People's Disability Network. We're a national systemic peak um, representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living with disability, their carers and families. So we've been around for over 20 years now and can place our origins back to a forum that was held in Alice Springs in 1999. So our work, as Kelly has mentioned, comes from the um, human rights framework in regards to, you know, those living with a disability, that they have a right to, you know, access society and a right to access services. So a lot of our work is educating the sector, but more importantly, supporting, you know, our mobs to know about their rights. Absolutely. And do you also identify as a woman with a disability? No, I I don't actually, but I, I, you know, my family, I've... I grew up with, like most Aboriginal people, with um, family that have, you know, some form of disability. So at FPDM, we would say that, you know, it'd be hard to find, you know, any um, mobs across this land that don't um, live with some form of disability because of, you know, historical reasons. So we have all have some form of anxiety, you know, in regards to, you know, navigating systems and... Um, programs that weren't designed for us. So, you know, creates a lot of anxiety within our communities. And traumas and intergenerational trauma and the impact of all of that. That's right. It all has a disabling effect. That's exactly right, Kelly. And and, and in fact, all our stories are different, aren't they? I I also have a vision impairment. so, um, So every disability is different. And... I think what's important here is there's there's so little 
information and and so little opportunity for um, First Nations people to tell with disability to tell their stories, isn't it? What do you think about that, Kelly? I I agree. I think that um, you know we talk a lot about systems like the you know in the you know systems and governments in general about you know things like the NDIS or, or other services for disabled people, but there's not often a lot of conversation about how that impacts first people with disability um, and and the the particular barriers and the disproportionate amount of barriers for those people and and how we can make those systems better and more fit for purpose for community. Absolutely. And I, and I think yeah. just, just to add to that, the in, International Days is probably um, a good example. So I'm one of those people that don't celebrate or, or you know, really acknowledge the day because I think it's very much become a day where service providers promote themselves and, and are running any days that are, you know, to, to acknowledge it. And you know, community often aren't even accessing those services. So, you know, because they, they can't. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a day that could be, could be taken back by the disabled community a lot more. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Kelly, because, you know, often it isn't a day of celebration. I mean, it, could it be also that it can be seen as a day of mourning? Not for deaths. I don't think that. No, I don't. I, I think, you know, for our, our First Nations people, Good. you know, living with disability, we've always been an inclusive society. But, you know, the, the reality is for, you know, a lot of our mob, we live in, you know, disadvantaged states or live with poverty. So it's more about, you know, resilience and just getting on with it. So Absolutely. for Aboriginal people, we collectively have always been inclusive of differences in our communities. Yeah. So it's not yeah. about celebrating anyone's differences. So it's a different conversation, but more importantly, we need to recognise, you know, that many of our people live with different um, differences and particularly undiagnosed, you know, disabilities. So it's recognising, you know, those differences that, you know, society needs to include, you know, yeah. our Aboriginal people. So if we can, you know, move... You know, it's also a Western concept about celebrating. So it's not really, you know, culturally the way we do business. We just include, you know, we don't have separate days for separate titles or separate diagnosis or separate themes. You know, we're just always inclusive. So that's where, you know, that, that um, the different areas are around understanding and, and the educational component. That you know, a lot of our people, yeah, don't you know, don't necessarily join. Absolutely. But but in saying that, a lot more people are. So I'm just about. I'm in Melbourne at the moment, but um, this afternoon I'm flying up to uh, over to Perth and then be going up to Derby in Western Australia. So um, uh, Derby's holding their first International Day of People with Disability event and expo and you know, trying to promote within the community, you know, the the amazing things that, you know, yeah, our mobs yeah. do with disability. 
So there's, you know, a couple of stories around it, really. Yeah, June, and, and it's very true what you're saying, and this is why I'm doing the show, because everybody has a different viewpoint, everybody has different experiences and, and different lived experience as well. And you're speaking, you know... I think, can, can I add yeah. to that? that I sure. think there's a, there's, a, there's a growing disability pride movement across the world, yeah. Um, yeah. which includes, um, you know, First Nations people with disability as well. Um, and it's so, so I subscribe to that. I say, you know what, I'm a proud disabled woman. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of that sometimes can be related to, that, you know, that we are existing and that we are, you know, getting through the barriers and the hurdles, you know, as much as we can. And, and there should be pride in that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think that, yeah, I, I certainly don't subscribe to a... Um, concept where I'm mourning or sad that I have a disability. It's, it's how oh, it is. Oh, no, so definitely in not. At large, that's, you know, we, as June said, you know, disability has always existed and, and, you know, there is an over-representation in communities. So we want people to accept that as just, you know, that, that's what it is and, and we yeah. need to make, yeah, things I, Yeah, absolutely. Easier. Absolutely, Kelly. And <laughs> look, I, I've got a bit of a, a warped sense of humour <laughs> in a way. I tend to, I, and when I when I actually said the word mourning, um, before we move on to that, I didn't mean that you know about people dying or that you know that people had to mourn their disability. I just meant that you know in some ways, um, and perhaps maybe I should have said it better, is in terms of people not having the right access to services, you know, and and, I and not celebrating it. That was what I meant. There. Yeah, that, so you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. In creating, you know, um, more exposure around International Day of People um, with Disability, it creates that visibility. Yeah. So, you know, people are visual, whether, you know, it's a physical disability or those hidden disabilities which we have in our community. It's about people, you know, coming forward and going, yeah, yeah, I live with differences, but, you know, I'm here too and, and see me. And I think that's what we want to create in regards to, you know, you know, not necessarily celebrating but recognising, you know, International Day of People with Disabilities. You know, if people are more visual and people understand, you know, there are so many different, you know, forms of, and particularly in our communities, undiagnosed disabilities. But, you know, it's not that they're not coping, but they just maybe need another helping hand to, you know, access things. So it's giving that visibility to those that, you know, are unrecognisable and and giving a voice and and giving a vision. That's exactly right. You know, we use those words. Yeah. Yeah, and and highlighting, you know, some of the people's disabilities, the achievements, so that younger people coming through with a disability can see... You know that there is opportunity and there is potential, and you know, but just yeah, hi- highlighting the really good things as well. Well, it, it and is. I but, think what we're yeah. trying to move away from too. So our founding elder, who was a Bundjalung man, where mm. Kelly lives, um, Uncle Lester Bostock, he was the the person that coined that phrase about double disadvantage. To be Aboriginal in Australia today can be a disadvantage if you have a disability. there's the double disadvantage because where do you put your hand up? You may get some of your cultural needs met or do you get your disability needs met? But sometimes you don't get 
both of those needs met. And, you know, getting back to what Kelly was saying about the next generation, we want them to, you know, participate in this society, disability or no disability, being Aboriginal, be proud of both. But for many of our young people to take another label, you know, they've already got the stigma, you know, in many areas of of being a young Aboriginal person and then to put their hand up and go, oh, yeah, and I live with, you know, it's very Another, true. You know, difference in my life. You know, it's shame for me. And most young people, you know, whether they're Aboriginal or not, don't want to put their hand up that they're different. Yeah, but, and, you know, and I think for parents as well, June, there's a real fear, um, you know, linked to, you know, the stolen generation and things like that, for a parent to show up to some, you know, government agency like the NDIS and say, we're, you know, we're struggling and, and we need some help. There's a, there's a real fear in that. And, you know, that's an issue and it's something that needs to be looked at and addressed so people, you know, are comfortable to access the services that they're entitled to. Well, I'm really glad that my question actually um, generated some really healthy, robust discussion. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> we, just, you know, we, could, we could go on all day. <laughs> when we come together, that's what it's about. And, you know, it's the little things. So, you know, people, who, you know, living with differences, as I always call it. So, you know, last night I was at the First and Forever concert that Briggs put on and others out at Hanging Rock in the Macedon oh. Ranges. Mm. And, you know, we're seeing more and more, which you wouldn't have seen them before, but, you know, accessibility for people with disability. So there were so many people out there, you know, that, and so they should be. You know, First Nations people with disability, knowing they can go to an event and their needs will be met. You know, a few years back, you wouldn't have seen the portable disability lose, for example. You know, they're the little things that make life much more easier for, you know, all all our mobs, all our people, you know, to, you know, just do everyday life. That's all everyone with disability wants. Oh, June, I, I couldn't agree with you. And to, know, and to know that it's going to be there as a standing thing, not to, you know, as a wheelchair user, if I want to do something, often, you know, I have to do a whole bunch of research that other people just wouldn't even think of. Correct. But, you know, yeah. is it accessible? Are there toilets? You know, is there any steps? All, all of that stuff, which, you know, takes the fun out of things. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about you it. You think, oh, why would I bother, like, in the end? It all gets... Too hard. Too much, yeah. And then, yeah, you know, and you'll know that more for yourself. Yeah. yeah, although I'm not a wheelchair user, I have a vision impairment, but I mean, I love disabled toilets because I can actually go in there, I can. I don't have to make, make an idiot of myself, you know, groping around for the toilet paper. <laughs> and, you know, there's Braille in, in a lot of those toilets yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, um, So, and, and of course, I, I think it really isn't very safe, Um for a, a blind person in, in a public toilet sometimes. You never know what can happen, although I have actually um, have some self-defence strategies up my sleeve, so look out, anybody that tries yeah. to attack me. Forewarning. <laughs> Forewarning, indeed. But, but, now, look, the topic yeah, for my show... That you yeah. feel like you need to have yeah. that, you know, is the issue. It's great ex- that you have got that, but... Absolutely, yeah, We've in a society where it's not needed. <laughs> That's right. We've, there's very three strong women listeners um, speaking about issues that matter. But the topic for the show today, and we haven't gone off topic, this is really important because we're, we're looking at Disability Day, but I wanted the two of you to really comment as well 
on Aboriginal people with disability in the criminal justice system. What do you two, um, can you two shed some light on that? It's a very complex topic and we'd be, we could be here all night, but... That's all right. Yeah, do, you want, so, do you want to start, Jean? Yeah, I'll just, I'll, and I'll hand over to you, Kelly. I just think quickly, you know, the reality is for most of our mob incarcerated are, um, are undiagnosed disabilities. Especially youth detention, they shouldn't be there in the first place. And, you know, it's already been, you know, um, research has been done that over 70% of our mob that are incarcerated currently have some form of undiagnosed disability, never been diagnosed from a young area. So there needs to be more diversional programs to support, you know, especially our women in jails. You know, it's not the place for them to be when, you know, they're undiagnosed disabilities. So we need to look at, you know, alternative programs for our youth, you know, raise the age from 10, you know, for criminal responsibility. So, you know, the, you know, there's some jails, you know, across, you know, certain areas of Australia that are 100% Aboriginal occupied. And, and this is not good enough, you know. So, you know, we really need to look at ourselves as a civil society is that the best we can do is lock up people with disability and even if you you know you have you know um recognize your disability in some of these areas there's no access in there there's no you know flexibility accountability in regards to what are your needs are as a person with disability so lately we heard up in the territory for example they were playing inmates vouchers to care for people with disability we're in the you know the Western world as a first world country. We're paying other inmates because we can't provide the appropriate needs for whatever they may be for an individual. You know, in our incarceration, and, yeah, what and there can we, be what real issues of that in terms of the type of support people might need. Correct of, of the, the the skill set of the person providing them, potential for abuse. Like it's it's a really concerning thing. Well, absolutely. I mean, how are you going to fit your wheelchair in a cell? Sorry, Jim. That's the problem. Yeah, the other issue for Australia is we've used incarceration centres as the default area for those that, you know, are not criminally responsible. So when, you know, they go before the judge and because of, you know, psychosocial or whatever disability they may eat, they're not, you know, um, can't plead guilty, you know, for the accountability but we haven't got anywhere to place, you know, these people with alternative supports. So our yeah. jails have become the default line for placing people with disability, particularly with mental health and other diagnoses, which shouldn't be, you know, in a first world country. Absolutely. No, people indefinite detention, you know, without, you know, even being convicted of a crime and, and people are just locked up for forever unless somebody comes and you know, takes big steps to try and resolve that situation. And in yeah. fact, Kelly, um, going on from that, like the Royal Commission, I've been actually studying a lot of um, material that's come out of the Royal Commission. And, you know, there have been very... First Nations communities um, have have actually been traumatised, not only in prison, but also by the police and, pro- and racial profiling. And... Not to mention that it was even stated um, from the respondents that there's generally no word for disability in their languages. Correct, yeah. 
So yeah. we would say, you know, in regards to a lot of our First Nations people, particularly in Central and, you know, Northern Western Australia, that the language barriers is another disability. So, you know, if English is your third or fourth language, you know, you don't understand, you know, the English narrative. So what happens for a lot of our people, whether, you know, and particularly we hear a lot for those that are hearing impairment, they just plead guilty because they're not understanding, you know, what's put in, presented in front of them. You know, they don't read and write English. They're not listening in English, you know. So we would say, you know, having, you know, language not being your first language in regards to the criminal justice system creates another disadvantage and it should be acknowledged. And that's about, you know, training those that are supporting, you know, particularly, you know, the police force and other areas, training them to acknowledge, you know, um, language differences, but more importantly, you know, you know, people, you know, live with um, disability and not all in wheelchairs. No, and I, and I think, Jim, some of that goes right back to, you know, young kids at school who, you know, people might say, oh, you know, they're mucking up in class and they won't listen and, you know, there, there's, there's often undiagnosed disability there that, that's not identified. So you know, the kids are bored or they're not understanding what's going on and they're frustrated, so they, you know, they start to get in trouble. And then from there, that's kind of, I think, we see kind of a trajectory then of not understanding what's being said and then ending up, you know, potentially in interactions with police, like you're talking about, and then, you know, then we've got people in jail and huge amounts of recidivism and it's all... It's all Linked, and I and I think the the you know the lack of access to diagnosis is 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 a really big key. If if we could solve that, that would you know make a big difference. You know, we've got to but in a you know a yeah. cultural way. So another example, yeah. you know, just uh, and people could we've got about five minutes, but yeah, go on. Yeah, if during the COVID pandemic, a lot of our mob have had you know um, way overdue um, or or more locally, you know, um, acknowledged about being out and about when they shouldn't have been or wearing mask wearing. So they, you know, account, uh, you know, got undue fines due to that. But it was also about, you know, particularly those with intellectual disabilities or other disabilities, not knowing the day-to-day rules around COVID. So we know if people have got fines, you know, twenty-five to 30000 they were being fined daily for you know, non-compliance of mask wearing or being out and about when they shouldn't have been. But it wasn't the recognition of, you know, there may be something else impacting, you know, particularly if they have some form of disability while they're out and about. But what happened, they were targeted as, you know, black people not, you know, not adhering to the rules. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, for people who have been, um, have had interactions with the justice system, um, you know, institutionalisation played a big part with some of that as well for for people. Just to, I guess, bring it into to focus of the the topic around justice. That that you know that on its own has a disabling effect to have to stay at home, and then yeah, poverty and not being able to afford masks and and all of that. It yeah, I agree, Jim. That it had a really disproportionate impact. Indeed, and, and in fact, prisons were raised as a particular setting where First Nations people were, with disability, 
are subject to violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And that's actually a direct response from the Royal Commission. Yeah, yeah 100%. We, you know, we knew all about this. So in regards to the work that FPDN does, we advocated for this Royal Commission for 10 years. So we knew, knew all this, you know, um, in, you know, intergenerational trauma and discrimination happen across you know, whether it was the justice, education, housing, you know, disability sectors that, you know, weren't inclusive of our, our mob and created further barriers. And most of it was around racism. And so that would include end, inst- you know? institutional racism, wouldn't it? Correct, yeah. Absolutely. Kelly and June, you two have been superstars today. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming onto the program. Good start I can't to believe. A ha- I'm sorry. Good start to a Monday. Oh, I've got Mondayitis actually, but <laughs> but not now after I've spoken to you two. Um, but yeah, look, this this show um, will be airing on the third of December, International Disability Day, and I'm and we'll be getting the podcast out to you very soon. Are there any final comments you wanted to make, either of you? No, I just think that, you know, the, the work, you know, there's a lot of work to still to be done, but, you know, people like yourself lend voice to, you know, our most marginalised and, you know, we need comrades, you know, across the areas and across the regions, whether it's in media or other forms that, you know, let's move forward and make an inclusive society. Absolutely. And what, about, and what about you, Kelly? Um, well, I'm, I might end on, on a really practical example Um that I guess kind of highlights um, some of the barriers that, that people face and linking to the, the double disadvantages Jim was talking about earlier um, and, and shows that perhaps how people sometimes end up um, in the justice system. So I've, I've been trying to find a um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre somewhere on the New South Wales North Coast that, that is wheelchair accessible um, and culturally appropriate and it just doesn't exist. We need um, to look so, at that. Yeah, we've got a person who, who wants to access support for, for their for their illness, um, and they just can't. We need so, to look at that know, in detail at some stage. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah. no, that, that's fantastic. And for me, you know, um, that I really enjoyed um, interviewing. Well, it wasn't really an interview. We were just talking about our stories. It was more a panel discussion, I think. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's interesting what, what the word mourning can can um, can unleash, isn't it? I use the word mourning and from that we actually um, had some really amazing discussions. So thanks so much for, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us anytime. Thanks Thank a you. lot. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You just heard an interview with June Reamer, First Nations woman and Deputy CEO of First People Disability Network. And joining her was Kelly Cox, Ambassador for First People Disability Network. And it's Marissa and I'm broadcasting today for this very special day of International Disability Day, 3rd December 2022. Hi, I'm Elle Gibbs. You're listening to International Day of People with Disability on 3CR. Disabled people rock. Make your gift giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. 
A First Nations-led organisation, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. Hi there, my name's Gemma Mahadio and you're listening to 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. And our, our next interview is with Peter McGillivray and she's a First Nations woman and South Sea Islander lawyer and researcher and in, it's based in the Institute of Global Development and Faculty of Law and Justice at New South Wales and Peter's worked on a range of criminology legal services and community development projects in Sydney and across Australia. And I wanted to welcome Peter to the program um, to talk about not just International Disability Day on 3rd December, but also to discuss First Nations people and in the criminal justice system and with lived experience of disability. Um, and we'll talk about that. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But. Uh, <laughs> talking about all this um but it's it's confronting but we need to talk about these issues don't we so we really do yes yeah so i'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself um and you yourself don't have lived experience of disability but you are a first nations woman so can you talk about um what land you're from yeah thank you um so i'm a kalkatongu and south Islander woman who grew up on Durrumbul country in central Queensland, now known as Rockhampton. So my ancestral homelands are around Mount Isa and Cloncurry, where my grandmother is from, and my grandfather is a South Islander man. Um, but I was born and raised on um, Durrumbul country in Rocky, and that's where all my family is now still today. Um, and I myself do not have a disability. Um, I've, like many Aboriginal people, um, have um, family members of mine who um, have disability um, and have that experience as a family member and carer, um, but I don't have a disability. All good. Thank you so much, Peter, for that introduction. So let's talk about the First Nations people and the criminal justice system and 
and of course, when there's a disability, it is a lot more complex. And you've been on our show, the Doing Time show, that I um, broadcast every Monday from four to five a few times, haven't you? But would you yeah. be able to just um, talk about just some of your your research and some yeah. of the experiences that you've witnessed? Because there's very little data on this, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. So um, I suppose the first experience of mine working professionally, um, looking and advocating at this issue um, was an Australian Research Council piece of um, work that I did at the University of New South Wales with a research team that was investigating the experience of Aboriginal people with cognitive impairment and intellectual disability in the criminal justice system. And we did that work in partnership with Aboriginal community-controlled organisations in New South Wales and Central Australia to understand some of the structural and systemic um, contributors to the situation whereby Aboriginal people are funnelled into the criminal justice system instead of receiving the supports um, that people need in the community and how... Um, that experience is actually contributing to the criminalisation of Aboriginal people with disabilities. Um, and so that was the first bit of work that I did. And then when I practised as a lawyer um, at Legal Aid in New South Wales and the New South Wales local courts and later in the children's court at Parramatta, I started to see this even more intensely but experienced by young people, children and young people. So occurring at a very early age. And we'd seen from the research um, looking at the experience of adults that Aboriginal young people um, uh, have contact with the police. This is Aboriginal young people with cognitive impairment and intellectual disability are having contact with the police much, much earlier. So as young as eight. Um, and that is a real problem because that experience of having so much police contact is actually a very well-worn path um, that starts at a young age, continues um, through adolescence, and then surely enough, um, upon turning 18, going straight into the adult system. So seeing that in my, um, my legal practice spurred me to um, want to make a larger contribution than just in-court advocacy. Unfortunately, there are limits to the change that we can affect working in a system which is just not working. And so that's when I've um, left legal practice to do my own PhD research, looking at the experience of First Nations children with cognitive impairment and intellectual disability um, and the specifics of how our system is criminalising this group of young people when what we really should be doing is building in-community supports, which are non-castral, non-criminal justice responses to um, the things that young people need to thrive. It's true, isn't it, Peter? And, and, and I think a lot of the time what tends to happen, I've read a couple, you know, there's lots of reports but nothing much being done about it, where police and First Nations people with disability ha can't communicate and there's, there's so many, there's, there's racial profiling and there's also language barriers and that's actually a, quite a, a cocktail of, of disaster, don't you think? Absolutely. Even before you get to... All of the factors that we know impacts upon people that contributes to um, criminalisation. So these are things like um, lack of housing and discrimination and racism and alcohol and drug dependency, which people can't get help for. 
the lack of mental health services. There's all of those things. And then you put on top of that the ways in which the system itself is creating the complexity through um, laws that are, um, have been not informed with any real evidence base about what works, without any disability-informed practice and specialisation, without any culturally-informed um, input from communities and the people who are actually living the experience, the voices of people with disability. It's just a, a huge cocktail of um, what doesn't work. Um, and we have inquiry after inquiry, uh, huge amounts of um, data that exists that's been actually, um, you know, generously been given by communities and people with disability, but we don't seem to be listening to the right experts. Um, and we need to change that. So who who are the experts? Well, the experts are the people who would live the experience. Um, the experts who are the people in community who are working tirelessly for change. Um, and they have been, I think this is something which has been um, really made evident through the Royal Commission. And also, as researchers, we need to be thinking about when we're producing knowledge in the form of research, what are our practices and how are we doing our work to ensure that we're doing this in partnership with uh, people with disability. Um, and that's something which is really important to me in my, in my research practice, um, and particularly in an area of law where you have lots of um, legal technicians but not a lot of uh, practice at doing research in communities in partnership with communities. And in fact, historically, since 1788, and this is prior, you know, while colonisation was taking place, and we are in colonisation now, is it fair to say, you know, that research has been, is obviously, has traumatic and negative connotations for Aboriginal people and country? That's spot on, Marissa. Um, As First Nations people, we know that research can make things um, so much worse or they can actually, it it can be empowering and it can make things better. Um, And we have lots of examples of research which um, takes a deficit approach to understanding First Nations people and communities um, and makes Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people the problem that needs to be solved through research when in fact we know that that is not Um, the approach that needs to be taken. And so we fight a battle on two fronts. One is the, you know, the harm that's caused by um, misaligned research and intentions, good intentions as they may be. Nevertheless, the the consequences can be dire. And so we're fighting on that front while we're also, as First Nations researchers, trying to um, carve out spaces where we can do the research that's actually going to change lives for the better. Um, And so... The voices of First Nations people in, in this kind of evidence-building space is really important. Um, and that, that's, that's important because so much research is still done about First Nations people, without First Nations people. And, of course, that also occurs in relation to um, people with disabilities, First Nations people with disability. Um, and so one of the you know, core tenets of disability advocacy is nothing about us without us. And, of course, that's a, that's a slogan that we use in um, First Nations Justice Matters as, as well. So it's, it's important. There's a, I, I think that anybody who 
is doing research um, and who doesn't understand the positionality and the importance of advocacy in the work that we do, um, you know, needs to go and read some First Nations scholars um, and immerse themselves in some of those decolonizing methodologies because the change that we want to see won't be achieved without engagement with those ideas. Yeah, I mean, look, I, with the Do and Time show that I do um, every Monday from 4 to 5, one of the repetitive and really important important topics that I'm constantly covering is the the role of police and the role of the courts. So once an Aboriginal person with a disability or First Nations person with disability is arrested, from that point onwards, that's when that's when all the barriers emerge. That that's that's right. So um, the what we have to remember is that the police um, hierarchy and the institution of policing um, is not well equipped to work with lots of different groups in our community. Um, and, and I think it's really stark, mostly stark when police engagement with people with disability of all kinds, but in particular um, intellectual disability and cognitive impairment. Um, and this was, um, there was a piece of research that was produced out of the Royal Commission, which looked exactly at this issue of policing and people with intellectual disability, and that a lot of the regulatory protections, so the laws and the guidelines um, that are there to protect um, certain groups of people um, and which police are supposed to have knowledge and practice of and understand how they work, um, the research found that that's not the case and that there's serious issues with um, police comprehension, understanding of um, their responsibilities when um, arresting and taking into custody uh, Aboriginal people, people with disability, young people. And so if you are somebody that is experiencing all of those things together, you are particularly disadvantaged in your interactions with police. Um, and these, you know, the, the solutions to these are, to these types of challenges, um, there's no silver bullet. There's lots of things that need to, needs to happen. Um, and one of those things is to actually keep people out of contact with the police in the first place. Because you don't end up in court unless you've had an interaction with a police officer. You don't end up in prison unless you've had an interaction with a police officer. And what we know about the way that policing is done in Aboriginal communities and certainly in particular postcodes um, is that it is discriminatory um, and racialized, and we need to build protections against that type of attention. Um, and that's investment in and um, the resourcing of um, community-based um, programs and uh, organisations which are doing positive strengths-based work with young people um, and with people with disability and in the form of the social services that people actually need, right? Um, these are systemic, systemically under-resourced areas of support and community capacity. Our schools, for example. Um, our schools are not equipped to support young people with disability. Um, our community organisations aren't resourced to support people with disability. Our housing services are not 
equipped or resourced to do that. So we're seeing all of these um, massive inadequacies in the community infrastructure that we need, um, you know, to, to then see billions of dollars invested in expanding the carceral uh, system. We have got that completely wrong. We need to see um, a, a full switch of that um, of that money flowing. We need to see the cost shift back into the community where it should be. Absolutely, Peter. And in case people have just tuned in, this is 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is special broadcasting for International Day of People with Disability. And you're listening to the an interview with Peter talking about First Nations people in the criminal justice system. So we're nearing the end of our interview, Peter, but are there any final comments that you wanted to make before we finish? Great question. Um, I think the one of the things that um, is really important to me is always questioning how are we ensuring participation of people with disability in the work that we're doing, in our advocacy, in our policy design, in our um, gathering of information about what's working and what's not working. Um, we need to do so much more to ensure that this work is led by people with disability and especially First Nations people with disability. And I've talked about this on your show before, young people with disability. Um, and I think we just need to be having conversations about this all of the time and we all should be asking you know, where are the people that we're talking about in this conversation? Um, because we're still seeing too much work being done um, without ensuring that the people who are at the centre of it are heard at all times. Peter, thank you so much for coming onto the program. I, I really um, value your contribution and we'll send you a podcast soon after all this is over. Thanks, Marissa. I love being on. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'd like to thank people for listening to this very important broadcast on First Nations people with disability and the criminal justice system. And it's goodbye now from Marissa. And please stay tuned for more disability programming right through to 7pm. used to think I was an extrovert, but I was just afraid of being alone. Coming off of my Alexa Pro, I can't text to talk on the phone. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I really wanna, I wanna, I wanna go home. Trying to talk to you But the music is way too loud And these drugs don't do anything I don't know why I ever go
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.